Welcome to the Hard Light Podcast. I'm Dr. Bob Wright, and I've spent the last 40 years studying the fulfillment of human potential, working on myself and coaching all sorts of folks on many different life paths to fulfill their potential and do things that they thought impossible. Along the way, I've learned there's a process based on responsibly looking at ourselves and expressing the truth of our experience to our highest vision. A science of developing greatness that isn't what corporate America, politicians, schools, and our parents tell us. That truth is the hard light. We are responsible for our lives and we can learn and grow instead of blaming and justifying. With this podcast, I'll talk with leaders who inspire us to celebrate the capacities and resilience of humanity. Leaders who inspire us to create and contribute to a world that works for everyone. The Hard Light Podcast is proudly sponsored by the Lions School of Transformational Business at Wright Graduate University. Wright Graduate University's applied business education develops the transformational leaders today's organizations need. Become a stronger, better you as a person and a business leader by learning more at wrightgrad.edu slash MBA. Now, let's start the interview. So, uh, so we want to dive in today on um, how you came to come to open book, but I think there's a value statement in your study of the anarchistic anarchist authors and the Russian authors in particular. And, and I'll remember, never forget the first time you straightened me out about my misunderstanding and the shit I gave you about uh, anarchy and it's it, it's really opened uh, an inquiry up for me. But if you could underline for people the bottom line value that you come at on the individual, which is totally where we're focused from completely different directions, I, I really think that's a very important intellectual, ideological foundation for people. I'm much better able to explain all that now than I would have been when we started Open Book, to be honest. But that said, the roots of the belief system are have been there for a long time. So you're correct. Uh, and and as you and I both know, and I, I was uh, triggered in a good way, not in the current world conversation, but triggered in a good way by reading your book, Transform, because it had that self-fulfilling belief cycle, which gave me uh the the way to enter into a a study of beliefs that turned into a 600 page book a few years later so um so yeah so i and paul my partner have always believed in people and again it's much clearer to me now at the time i think it was more just how we were in quotes uh now it's it's a more overt and uh documented philosophical framework that we work with but it's really just a positive belief in people. And, and to your point, this is what I, my version of anarchism is at its core is a positive belief in human beings, uh, a belief in that hierarchy, although operationally important in the moment is not tied to human value or ability. Uh, and, and that when you take those and then you add the belief that decisions are gonna be better when you gather more diverse perspectives. It, it's very supportive of what Open Book is all about. 
So uh, how we literally got onto open book management was I read a book, which is how I've learned a lot of things. It's how I learned about beliefs was from your book. Uh, open book came from, as you well know, the book, Great Game of Business by Jack Stack and Bo Burlingham, uh, both of whom I now have known for, I don't know, 25 years. Uh, and when I read it, uh, so in the context of beliefs, uh, as, as you know, I mean, I started to look at beliefs in three broad categories, negative beliefs, neutral beliefs, and positive beliefs. And uh, negative beliefs, I look at beliefs as the root system of our lives. We'll come back to this in a future session. Negative beliefs, if they're the root, beliefs are the root system, clearly lead to negative outcomes. Neutral beliefs don't do much, and positive beliefs lead to positive outcomes. I would have to say I had neutral beliefs about open book management. <laughs> we weren't opposed to it. I just never heard of it. So it wasn't like we, we had thought it was a bad idea or we were opposed to it. It was essentially like somebody brought us an intellectual technology that we had never experienced. And then it was like, well, that totally makes sense, given the beliefs, longstanding beliefs about positive uh, images of humankind, et cetera that we had always held, this system was far more aligned with what we had wanted to do than the typical accounting methodology, which is what we were taught like everybody else was taught. So that's really where it came from. And that's, it was an easy sell for us. It's, open book is not an easy sell for many organizations because they don't have those underlying beliefs. Now you have, I wanna go back to a pre-open book for, again for a second. I actually don't know if it's pre, but I think the subtitle of All But Your Bacon book uh, says uh, a lapsed anarchist. Yeah, I'm not that lapsed anymore, but yes, you wanna hear the story of that? Please. So I studied anarchism in school. Uh, in fact, in my e-news this week, I just wrote about Emma Goldman. It would have been her 153rd birthday this week. Um, I studied it in school. I was drawn to it for many reasons. Uh, one of which is, I think, just in hindsight, is just it was a very positive belief in people, and it wasn't about hierarchy, and it was really about helping people to become themselves, which is, of course, what you and Judith have been doing <laughs> for decades in your own way, right? Yeah. So, and and I, I, in hindsight, it's what we've been trying to do at Zingerman's for a long time too. But anyway, so I studied the anarchists. I graduated from University of Michigan. Uh, I got a job as a dishwasher, much to my mother's chagrin, uh, mostly so that I wouldn't have to move back home to Chicago. Nothing against Chicago. It's just a little too close to the old ecosystem. And uh, because I took that job as a dishwasher, I stumbled into a line of work that I had never even knew existed because no one in my family was in business and it didn't even dawn on me you could do it. Uh, and then also into great people. So my partner, Paul Saginaw, who you know well, started that day as the general manager uh, and that's how we met so uh, i love food and cooking i still cook at home every night and it's still an integral piece of my day-to-day -day work and my day-to-day -day life that really matters a lot in terms of bringing beauty and and purpose to to what i do that said there's a lot more to it too uh which now includes the anarchist stuff anyways when i started to uh, get into management of kitchens i would I tried sort of leaving everyone alone in what I naively perceived to be akin to what anarchist beliefs would tell you to do. Uh, 
in the in the hope people would just do the right thing and that failed miserably for many reasons which i could now explain which isn't anarchism's fault it was my fault but uh and that's sort of where i left it so for many years as per your question about the sub the the entree title let's say of the books i would say i was a lapsed anarchist because i still believed in it but they didn't practice i, I want to back up to a statement you made earlier about um, hierarchy structure Mm -hmm. And and that while structure is necessary at a level, um, mm -hmm. I think what you were saying is I don't want structure that suppresses the individuals uh, flourishing as an individual learning, growing and and celebrating life. Yeah. And, and, well, and yeah. Well, that's absolutely true. So there's a difference between hierarchy that's operational hierarchy from thinking hierarchically. So operational hierarchy is simply somebody's playing quarterback. If we're using football, they call the play. Like it doesn't mean they're smarter. <laughs> it doesn't mean they're a better person. And it doesn't mean that the rookie wide receiver on the sideline doesn't notice stuff that the quarterback misses. It just means they're calling the play. If we're in, a, in an orchestral metaphor, there's a conductor. It doesn't mean they're necessarily the best mind or whatever it's just that's their work and and you can't have everybody conducting or no, there's no rhythm to the music right so from that sense it makes sense but from the from that perspective it makes sense but from the hierarchical thinking mindset it doesn't make sense when we equate hierarchical position with intelligence creativity brilliance insight Etc. And so when that happens, then what you described is an inevitable result, which is people are excluded because they're not at the top. So we wouldn't need their opinion. Whereas we know in nature, you're sitting in front of a beautiful nature, at least on your screen. I don't know where you actually are, but uh, and in nature, the most the healthiest ecosystems are the most diverse. And this is true in organizational ecosystems, too. So what I would suggest, and I've written a lot about it, but most organizations are paying full price, but only utilizing whatever 25% of the ability of the people that they employ because they're leaving them out of all these conversations when their perspectives and insights could really help. So, Did you ever get into Hannah Arendt and collegial power? Uh, I got some into Hannah Arendt. I actually have one of her books in the backseat of my car, uh, but I don't remember about collegial power, but it sounds aligned to what we're talking so about. So I, I came to the game through collegial power and non-hierarchical uh, empowerment of people. And, yeah. and we were doing experiments back in, in the early 70s. And what we discovered was there was no directionality. There was no order. And there was nothing ever going to get done. So I begrudgingly came to this uh, conclusion you have that there is a level of differentiation of roles that does not have to mean disempowerment of roles. Yep. No, absolutely. And in fact, uh, Emma Goldman, going back to anarchism, said, along with Alexander Berkman, they said together that the point of organization is to get people to greatness. That's the point of the organization. So I agree. Uh, and and so anyway, backing up to the anarchist. So I would say I was a lapsed anarchist because I still believed in it, but I didn't practice. Uh, a dozen years ago when part one of the leadership series that I've been 
doing uh, was in the works. I was asked to speak at the Jewish Studies Department by Deborah Dashmore, who was the head of the department. And she had read an essay I had written recently at the time about the history of Jewish rye bread, which was quite a long essay. And she liked it. And so she said, I want to title it like anarchism on rye or rye bread and anarchism or something because she knew i had studied anarchists and i thought okay that's cute whatever it's a year from now we'll deal with it later and then when i got about three months out i was like man this is going to be bad because i haven't even looked at my books in 20 years i mean i liked it but it, i'm out of touch and at business conferences nobody knows anything about anarchism generally so i'm safe but now i'm going to jewish studies where they actually study these people for a living i better get my act together so i went and pulled all my old books out and started to reread them and i was blown away by two big things first how much of what paul and i and the organization had created was already akin or aligned with a lot of anarchist thinking even though i hadn't been conscious of it and even more importantly had the realization that as per what you just said about collegial thinking is that a lot of what's now called progressive business is anarchism. <laughs> they, they just don't call it that. So non-hierarchical thinking, self-organizing work teams, uh, chaos theory. I mean, these are all anarchism under other names. And I don't care what the name is, but it just made me realize that so much of what I've been studying in school and what people like Emma Goldman were going to jail for, women's rights, equity, diversity, uh, are now called progressive business. I, I love that phrase and I haven't heard it, uh, that it's the purpose of business is to uh, support the workers to get to their greatness. Yeah, uh, that's I can not find the you the quote right use. now. Let me, I happen yeah. to have the book under my computer, piling it up to get a better angle. Let me look it up here. Here it says, it follows logically that the greater number of strong, self-conscious individuals in an organization, the lesser the danger of stagnation and the more intense the organization's vital element. In short, anarchism struggles for a form of social organization that will ensure well-being for all. The reality is that the true function of organization lies in personal development and growth. I love that what you just said was uh, also could also be heard as transformational leadership. No, absolutely. Twenty first right. century. Except this came from the International Anarchist Congress in Amsterdam in nineteen oh seven. No disrespect to you or me. <laughs> well, it 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 actually makes me start thinking, and we're going to have to get to open book in a minute. But I like getting some of the philosophical substrate behind this, um, uh, Vygotsky, Russian psychologist educator, um, said that uh, school was only transformational if it transformed the student, the teacher, the school, the curriculum, the school, and the world. And, and that's probably directly in line with the same stream of thought. Yeah. Uh, and he was a contemporary of um, Piaget. Yep. Yeah. Well, the the anarchist there was a lot of educational focus within anarchist work uh, because they believed that the future was going to come from 
helping people learn to think free when they were kids, not trying to convert people who had been trained not to think free uh, when they were 30 or 40 or 50. So Ferrer from the modern schools. It's I was just about to say, are you talking Freire to me? <laughs> yeah, well, no, no, not Paulo Freire. That's another guy. But Francisco Ferrer was from Barcelona, was executed so by the Spanish government. But the modern schools, which became worldwide, uh, came after his, uh, well, he had started one there, but it came after his execution. And Montessori uh, is very aligned with it. Steiner School is very aligned with it. Uh, so, but anyway. Well, and also, so you, it all fits with Freire and, and uh, liberation education yeah. as opposed to suppression education. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Okay, so we've got some cool foundation for our conversation all the way from um, historic, you know, Russian uh, anarchists to uh, transformational leadership with Bass and Riggio and and how they defined it. Now, let's dive in to the open book realities. And, um, you know, you know, we learned open book from you because I'd been following Stack for years. Mm-hmm. But until I read about how you guys were doing it, I wasn't interested. But when I saw what you were doing, I thought we we could go at it. And um, then we had uh, we did the Zing train trainings um, with you and Ann, I think. And then uh-huh. Ron Maurer and Ann um, actually came down and consulted with us for over a year. Yeah, it's great. It works. Well, but but let's let's we've got some theoretical foundation um, it, 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 that gives us a context on individual empowerment. Now, take us into the inner workings of Open Book uh, as you grew into it. Well, I mean, there's in a, in, in a way there's a lot, and another way there's it's very simple. Uh, it's not just showing everybody the financial statements. They're not that interested. I'm not even that interested. <laughs> There's some key numbers that are super important. This is really about involving, systemically involving everyone in your organization because this is equally true in not-for-profits as it is in businesses and could be used in classrooms also for schools. Uh, it's about involving everybody in the organization in uh, running the business. It doesn't mean they necessarily have to get the final say, uh, but they're systemically participating in it, or at least have the chance to participate. If they opt out, they opt out, but uh, in, in decision-making around the business and it's framed, uh, I'm actually sitting in front of the whiteboard at Zinc Train. Uh, it's framed around key operational metrics the, the, the financial statements are also available. It's not like we're hiding it. It's just you don't really need it in the same way that if we were to go to the Bulls game in Chicago, you don't really need to know whatever Michael Jordan or Zach Levine's shooting percentage in fourth quarter in the last two minutes of games in which the Bulls were behind by 10 or more points. Like somebody has that. And you can get it if you wanted it. But if you walk, if you go to the bathroom and you come back and the game's going on, all you really need to know is the score. 
how much time is left, maybe how many points the leading score. You know, there's six, seven things you want to know. Beyond that, it's available, but it's not really critical to what you do. So Open Book is based on a version of translating the Jumbotron scoreboard in a basketball game in an NBA stadium into what we do in the business. So sales, super important. Most businesses, cash is very important. Office supplies, if you're staples, might be critical. If you're uh -huh. you and me, it's a pretty small number and I don't need everybody. It's not like we're hiding it. It's just, it's not going to make that much difference, you know? So it's, it, and then because of our work, we have also woven in non-financial metrics around customer service experience, food quality, whatever it is that we're working on can be woven into it. But the key again is involvement and then it's, that it's a system. So it's generally a weekly, could be monthly, could be bi-weekly, but generally weekly gathering. Uh, we call them huddles, which came from the open book management, the great human business. It's from their terminology looking at it like a sport uh, and it's an hour generally uh, and it means it's crisp uh, it's a lot of forecasting it's a lot of voices it's not the business manager or the accountant coming in and telling everybody what happened because they're not interested it, if you have a huddle with 15 different lines on a whiteboard like i have behind me it might be 10 12 different people on the line so the voices are changing the conversations changing a lot of focus on forecasting, not just on what already happened, but on what you're going to do about it, et cetera. So it's, a, it's just a very different way to play the game of business in the language of the book. Uh, and I would suggest in hindsight, the old model is a little bit like the workers are playing basketball, but only the coach knows the score. And to, no, I, I, want to go back, I want to go back to the uh, what you're going to do about it. Uh, how, how have you built in that level of accountability and responsibility? Um, I, I, I loved some of the things that we saw at Zing Train, but mm -hmm. tell, tell us from your point of view, how you built that uh, responsibility and ownership in. Well, it's not perfect. Nothing is, but we have a thing. We have our own rules of finance. It's adapted from stuff in the great game book. Uh, one of them is what we call the 80-20 rule. It's not the standard 80-20 whatever Pareto rule. This is in the huddle, you spend roughly 20% of the time where you're, as a line owner, excuse me, talking about sales or food cost or labor cost or whatever it might be. Only 20% is spent on what happened. 80% of your time is spent talking about what you're going to do. Most organizations, it's like 95 in the past and five <laughs> in the future uh and it's the this is much crisper so it's more like here's what happened last week here's what's coming up and if they need help or other people could raise their hand and go i don't know about your forecast it seems a little weird or you forgot about here we're in ann arbor the u of m home michigan home football game is that week don't we need to account for that whatever it might be so most of the time is spent looking at what's going to happen, which gives us time to adjust our behaviors accordingly. The accountability, you know, like, you know, I mean, all accountability comes from us, each of us. <laughs> it's what we decide to do. But the peer pressure and the consistent regimen around having a huddle every week really helps. Because if the same person doesn't do what they say they're going to do, which can happen, 
but it's always in a group and it's roughly a lot of the players or people are the same group every week. So it's, 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 it's much easier for me to go, Bob, you said last week you were going to do this and you're like, you know, it'd be normal. Like, Oh my God, I totally forgot. Okay. I'll have, you'll have it next week. Well, I mean, if again, it's on a list of action steps that we all commit to, right. Quite simple. So if three weeks, four weeks, five weeks in a row, you're not doing it. It's in front of everybody in a good way doesn't require shaming, but it allows for conversation. Well, I love the 80-20 metric, and I remember learning it with you guys, and I think it's one that we forget. Yeah, it, most it, people so do. Much, yeah, it's so much easier to talk about what has been oh, than yeah. what I'm going to do. Or, or to argue about what could happen, but when you actually have to pin down a forecast and explain why you chose the one you did. And it's your job to do that. It changes the whole dynamic. Now, how do you work rewards into that? Um, because this is this is a spent a struggle with us. Um, I, I, there's a net tendency of, of the staff to actually, if, if they don't meet their forecast and their plan, to just mm -hmm. lower the forecast and the plan. And, and uh, that's a challenge that we face um, yeah. pretty significantly. Well, I think that's, that's universal uh, in my experience. One of our rules is it has to tie out. So if they lower the forecast of sales, there's going to be impact on profit or on cash or both, right? So if they if they aren't tying out then it's just like well whatever we're going to sell 99,000 instead of 12,000 oh well the problem is when you go out for 8 10 12 weeks or whatever and you start to see you're going to run out of cash and layoffs will commence soon after yeah it's a different conversation people are going to get to see consequences yeah and if they don't see that then it, you know and Conversely, I mean, let's, you know, it's been hard in the pandemic, I mean, to do forecasting when, like in a restaurant, you don't even know if the dining room is going to be open, right? So, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of chaotic factors that have come into play that have somewhat altered the pressures. But nevertheless, you still need to tie out. <laughs> like running out of cash means you, it's like you ran out of gas in the car. It's just not going to go. It doesn't matter how much you love the car or how much you wanted to see your grandma. You're still not going to go. You know, it's, it, so watching you at the Roadhouse, which is your more formal dining experience, mm -hmm. um, is a thing of beauty because you're always looking for what's wanted to, and needed from mm -hmm. clearing a table to pouring water to greeting people. And, and you really have what we call what's wanted and needed attitude. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and so have you always been that way or how did that develop in you? Well, it's hard to remember, Bob, as you know, uh, what 40 years ago was really like, but yes, I think I have always been that way. And Paul was always that way. Uh, and this goes back to hierarchical thinking, like there's no correlation in either of our minds and probably not in most of our organization still to this day between 
I'm the CEO and I shouldn't have to pick up a paper towel off the floor. Like, why would I not? In fact, it's the inverse. It's more important for me to pick it up. So I think that from that perspective, yes, it's always been that way. And then I think I would say, you know, with servant leadership and Robert Greenleaf in mind, et cetera, et cetera, it's actually more valuable because when people see the leader doing it, it sends messages, which not everybody notices, but a lot do. And I truly believe if everybody, like if Congress was, everybody did a day a month washing dishes in the congressional cafeteria, it would, the whole country would change. It just, it's just, it's just like humility, which I wrote a pamphlet on is I would suggest it's our natural state as human beings. It comes from the same word in oh. my organizational ecosystem metaphor. Humility is humus, which also comes from the same word, which is topsoil. Without it, nothing good grows. It's almost impossible to grow effectively like the nice picture you have behind you without topsoil, right? So humility is essential, but it's not what's rewarded in most places. So they lose it. The humility erodes doing what you described. Tell me the term that you used again. What's wanted and needed. Yeah. So that's humility because it's no, you can't say it doesn't work to have that mindset and go like, oh, I'm, I'm way too important to bring a coffee to that table. <laughs> it doesn't even make sense. It's ludicrous because it's all about what's wanted and what's needed. So you, you're by definition, you're, systemically regrounding yourself in humility which is awesome so i'm, I'm going to take a kind of a turn on this one because it there's humility and there's humanity and there is um being yourself i i was at one of my earliest sing train trainings in ann arbor mm -hmm. with you guys and um you, I think it was you had one of the brand new employees who had his uh, passport mm -hmm. and he was just about done filling his passport out mm -hmm. and he was in like the warehouse or something mm -hmm. in one of the uh, other units other than the deli or the restaurant. And um, he was called on and he articulately with pride talked about what he was learning how he was learning it, where he was going. And it, there was very clear, there was a map and um, the values were all, all around the, 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 the walls, but they were also woven into the, the lines that he had a senior staff person sign off for him. Yeah, which is way more important. I mean, this is, I, I just had this conversation with somebody the other day. I mean, we, we actually have our, probably backwards on your zoom screen but a statement of beliefs that we actually spent two years working on and we rolled out a year ago which is not values that's also we have that for 30 years this is belief so not about ethics just beliefs that we're agreeing to use and you know in a nice way she, and she was excited about it but she's like well there's a lot of them i mean people can't remember all that i'm like no of course not. <laughs> they, they, the point is that they learn them slowly over time and they internalize them slowly over time, just like all the behaviors that all of us have learned and internalized. Okay, so when we do 
your beliefs book and which will probably be when we go into self-management mm-hmm. i i'm gonna have to see this because this is clearly a refinement of values to beliefs and yes. um and but we're on open book now so tell me about yeah. open book values and beliefs well so in our beliefs because i happen to have it right here <laughs> since i just pulled it out of my bag uh let's see we believe each person is a creative unique individual who can do great things in life so that's and the antithesis of most organizations who think frontline people believe frontline people are sort of losers that are there to fill a task completion role not to actually think uh we believe our success individual success can be assessed by how much we help those around us to develop and grow so people learning how business finance works helps them think like leaders helps them run their personal finance reduces their stress at home if they manage their own money better helps them make better decisions which makes the business more money etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, we believe personal transformation and growth are imperative to our personal and organizational success so does it work for everybody no but if three or four people out of a hundred like it clicks and they get engaged because of open book we're all coming out ahead uh, we believe everyone can excel at more than one thing. So you could be a busboy or a baker, but you could also own the line in the huddle for net operating profit. Okay. It's not like it is. So, I mean, I could keep going on and on. Well, but... what, what I'm getting already just with that little bit, and I'm sure given um, your belief book that um, that this goes in depth, but what's really cool as I'm listening to you, and I'd like you to expand on it going into other beliefs and stuff, is that we are talking about applied beliefs. Yeah. And um, you've always been willing to talk about the gap between the belief and my behavior or my thinking. So that's, uh, that, that's a, you know, in, it's woven in. So open book is a codification of beliefs. And you, you, your beliefs at Zingerman's aren't necessarily the same beliefs that they, they have down at, you know, in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, no, but those are closer around open book management than our beliefs would be to the beliefs around this issue between us and Monsanto, let's say. You know, okay, okay. So you, you, you said that it would be almost impossible for things like Enron and WorldCom to have happened yeah. in organizations yeah. with open I believe book financing. That. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, because somebody would have asked the, the questions that the people who are around the top knew should be asked, but nobody wanted to lose their job. If you worked in an open setting, not necessarily around finance, but the way we work, Russia would never have invaded Ukraine because somebody would have said, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Let's talk about it. And I don't want to get into weird politics, but the Supreme Court, regardless of what the decisions are, would have been made after two years of 
national coming together to try to figure out what to do. And I don't want to get into what's right and what's wrong on which side of which, but regardless of the decision, and I, 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 I can read you a text I got from one of the managers at the Roadhouse. who said, I thought you would find it amusing that the first thing I thought of when the big case was overturned last week is this is why bottom line change, which is our organizational change process, which is basically open book for change. This is why bottom line change is so precious and we need to preach and practice it as much as possible. Imagine if we all, if we have used, if we had used as a country bottom line change, everyone's voice would be heard. Sure, That's it's beautiful. high in the sky fantasy to have a hundred million people work through a bottom line change, but the spirit of that needs to have happened and it didn't. And I'm sad that it didn't. And I'm going to, I'll tell you that I know from conversation, caring and, and open and supportive that he and I don't actually have the same point of view on the content but that's not <laughs> that, but that's not the but we work great together and it's a totally compassion-based collaborative conversation where he everybody's looking for a way to help everybody get ahead right and that's what could be happening but what would happen instead just as a as a with again regardless of content is a hierarchical decision with no no conversation outside of the room of the bosses, and this is what happens. It well, there's a, there's another a tizzy. What? It sends everyone into chaos. Well, there's there's another level to that story that most of the world doesn't know. So let me just go back to sitting in a Zing train training room and seeing the values up. And now, now I'm going to have to wait to see the beliefs. I know. Uh, see the the values up. That's a critical piece. Now the it, it, let's let's just hit Enron one more piece. Um, we were brought in to help with the reemergence of Arthur Anderson, and so I got to dig into the structure and what happened at Anderson, who mm -hmm. you know came down uh, unnecessarily actually after Enron because mm -hmm. they were their client, and right. so Anderson had always had a principles and standards committee think values. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that could say no to any piece of business. Mm -hmm. And that committee had been saying no to Enron for years, but the committee- it took it reported, anyway. Well, the, the <laughs> committee reported to the CEO, it was a structural mistake, not the board. So the CEO could overrun the committee and making money added more than the quality and the standards of the company. And so that's part of the story that people don't know that we got to look at it, restructuring it. So what you're, what, what you're talking about, so that's a disintegrated system where the values, mm -hmm. it, it, historically, everybody just agreed if the value principles and standards committee said no, it didn't happen. But what happened is as greed or desire for money, whatever, steps in, then that committee gets overridden and bam, the, the cost is huge. So yep. say a little bit more about how you really keep the vitality of the values and the beliefs. And I, I see open book as a critical piece, but I don't think it's the whole game. No, no. That's the point of all of what we do is, excuse me, and 
it's not in a book yet. Well, it's it's in pieces in books, but it will become a whole book. But it's just this idea of an ecosystem, organizational ecosystem as a metaphor, right? So in nature, there's never just one thing. It's actually the search for the one thing that's the part of the problem. And so if you have only one way of doing things, it'll work for a lot of things, but inevitably it will be unstable, unsound or whatever for a lot of other ones. So uh, staying aligned with the value sounds good, but when there's like, if the people who are in the room benefit from the decision <laughs> that they're making and the people who don't benefit aren't in the room, no matter how good you're, you think your intentions are, you're going to slide. I mean, and, and if you, if you have frontline people in there who have nothing to gain from these terrible decisions, why wouldn't they say anything? Whereas when you're at an upper level, A, you get your own financial gain from it. B, when you're at the top, you don't want to lose your job, et cetera, et cetera. So by not having diversity in the room, it diminishes the quality of the conversation and the questions that need to be asked, never going to get asked. So diversity is um, a key element of the health of an ecosystem, as you said at the beginning. Yeah. And so what I'm hearing is that part of uh, open book is having diverse opinions, respectfully, yeah. inclusively challenging each other and building yeah. Uh, on each other. So it's diversity of opinion is a critical element. Yeah, and opinion's the manifestation, but diversity of background, diversity of perspective, diversity of thinking. And it, it needs to be done within the framework that we work with. So if if somebody, I, it's not for me to say that you can't hold racist beliefs, but it's not going to work if you work here and try to practice them. So I'm not saying like, everybody should just come in and we can argue about inclusion. Like we're not going to do that. These are the frames within which we work within those frames. We want the diverse perspectives because I don't want somebody coming in every 60, 50 minutes and going like, are you sure we really want to have an open book management? <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it sounds like a helpful question, but it's not because it's basically challenging the bases of how we work every, every hour. It's impossible to get anything done. So it isn't permission to just barf out any opinion I have. I, I'm, I'm no. bringing my diverse perspective to open book management, to the conversation, to the planning, to the operation. Yeah. And so I become a, a an inclusive, diverse, yeah. diverse element. Yes. So we have our mission statement. We have our vision. These are real documents that we need to use. We have our values, like our guiding principles that you mentioned. Now we've added this statement of beliefs to that also. So all of these are providing framing for the conversations. It doesn't give the answers, but not to make pick on a Supreme Court, but it's not going back to what did Ari and Paul really mean in 1982? <laughs> like we can't change the sandwich because that's what they wrote in 1980. Like it doesn't make sense, but we do need to have framing for it so that it's not completely, let's turn Zingerman's into a, Putin-style dictatorship, it seems more efficient. Like that's not on the table. Well, yeah, yeah there's, you know, it's interesting. The, the distinction you're making is that efficiency um, does not necessarily equal health. No, and 
efficiency is confused with effectiveness and they're not the same. And so, uh, and also the framing through which you judge success. So this is another piece of the ecosystem. Uh, we're, it's another conversation as per all of these things, but we're very close to completing work on turning the organization into a self-owned business through a tool called a perpetual trust, which is a longer conversation. But the point is success for us comes from what we talked about earlier, the growth of the people here and creating something that 50 years after Paul and I have left the planet is still healthy and contributing to the community, right? It's akin to an old growth forest. The typical business model is success comes from clear cutting. The only point of planting a forest was to cut it so you could get the money. This is you plant the forest so that you can have a forest. <laughs> and yes, we want some money en route, but the point of the work is not the money. I like I'm not down on the money, but it's 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 one element of the ecosystem, not the point of the ecosystem. Well, so ecosystem is uh, right outside my window here. Um, is our reconstructed prairie? Yeah, I see it. Oh, that, that's actually uh, behind us uh, a bit, and and that's what it'll look like in the next two weeks. Um, but but um, I was out walking today, and I was scoping out, and um, I, we we plant and we built the prairies. We have we have almost two acres of original prairie, and uh -huh. we've built another thirty acres of prairie. However. I did not understand prairie management right. and you have certain bad players yep. and um, that, that just invade and push everybody else out. Yep. And so I'm, I'm starting to look at trying to catch up with, and parts of the prairie are just gorgeous. They're just rich and lush. And then there are parts that are just bereft of richness um, and they've got a number of problematic elements to them that I did not know to watch for when yep. we planted it 25, 27 years ago. Yeah, makes sense. But if you hadn't learned anything in 27 years, it wouldn't say much. Unfortunately, I'm just learning some of it now, but we won't talk about that. Um, I'm a little slow to the game, and I'm playing catch-up now. Uh, and and so... But, but with the open book, so the, what happened is I watched some of the degeneration happen and I felt terrible because I didn't know what to do. Right. And it's only in the last two years I've thought of what to do. The nice thing about open book is you're doing it is the, with your weekly huddles, you are theoretically requiring that we all bend our minds to optimal functioning on a weekly basis. Yeah. And we're teaching people how to run a business because one of the beliefs I didn't get to is that everybody's 100% responsible for the health of the organization, no matter what job they have. Right. Well, how it's hard to be effectively responsible if you have no clue. <laughs> it's like you could bring me there and tell me I'm responsible for the prairie, but I don't know what to do. So it's not that helpful. I need so how do, how do you how do you maintain that attitude? The same way you maintain anything. It's a lot of work. I mean, it's modeling, it's teaching it, it's clear expectations, it's reaffirming when it works well, it's 
gently correcting course when it doesn't it's helping change people's language to get them out of saying like i love that when you, that zingerman's does this i'm like you are zingerman's <laughs> you mean we yeah yeah by the way do you know about our talents and stinkers economy no do you know mondragon yeah totally so we we go to different spiritual communities uh, just about every year and mm -hmm. when we were in mondragon some of our finance folks started going well they yeah of course they're valuing the worker it's catholic worker philosophy but they mm -hmm. said we're still not at a level of really valuing the individual and honoring the individual's mm -hmm. impact on others individuals so we started mm -hmm. what we call the talent mm -hmm. economy if you say something that lifts me up i give you a talent or something that mm -hmm. lifted you up i give you mm -hmm. a talent if you say something that tears you or me yeah. down or somebody down i give you a stinker and so we're monitoring uh -huh. those the beliefs because the beliefs you're talking about your neutral creative or or destructive yeah. they're coming out of our sentences all the time and so yeah. that's our tool to support each other to catch our thinking and yep. re rematrix we call it or reprogram ourselves yep yep totally yep so so yeah, an open book is a way to do that around all kinds of things, right? So most of most hourly employees in the world, not out of malice, but they've been raised with the belief that their perspective is irrelevant, is not interesting to the business. Like they voice it at home, they voice it at the bar after work, they voice it in the bathroom, but they don't voice it in the conversation. This is just bringing those. They have the opinions. It's just. The people who are making the decisions don't hear them. This is where you systemically bring it into the same room as best you can. I mean, it's still imperfect, of course, but if you get more of it in the room and you help to discredit the uh, side conversations when people aren't willing to come forward into the place where they're welcome and then they're they're mad, their opinion is kind of the credibility is reduced significantly. We're just now starting to realize that some people aren't going to talk enough and really de deal in. Yeah. And we've always had our paired sharing and our group sharing, and we're starting to really build it into every line mm -hmm. that we, that really invites everybody to think into each line, whether it's theirs or not. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, this is never done. I mean, I, you know, like there's a lot I should be doing in the world that I'm not doing too. I mean, no, nobody's doing everything. I mean, no, I mean, it's, you know, so it's, it's just that more people engaged is better than less people who could come, but choose not to is much healthier than people can't come. Okay. So the first law of a non-diverse ecosystem is degeneration it'll degenerate to a monoculture. Okay. Um, and um, what I see you setting up is, um, is, is a generative culture that actually creates its own, its own uh, differentiation. Yeah, um, that's the idea. I, I just found a, a plant in our first prairie we rebuilt that's called um 
carry-on weed. Mm -hmm. We never planted it. I have no clue where it came from, but it's there. And there's one example I've found of it so far. And I was, I was looking at some invasive plants that I wanted to take out. And uh -huh. amidst those invasive plants was, was carry-on weed. And I think that's kind of cool. And they, it's called carry-on weed because it stinks like rotting corpses. Uh -huh. um, and, um, and so I think that's the other challenge is that we can catch and honor those new diversities that emerge. Yeah, absolutely. And now, we know one of the things you do is it's not inherent in open book, but if somebody wants to um, open a new business and become a partner, you've got just a very detailed process. So if I say, I want to I become another part of the Zing uh, family, uh, you know, I, I, and I, I was there when, when the Korean restaurant got started. Yep. Did she make it through the uh, pandemic? Yep. Oh, good. Yeah. Because she was still just doing her summer cart. Oh, no. I was there. She's still going. I mean, it's hard, you know, it's a hard business. But anyway, yes. I mean, the other piece of that is the bottom line change that I mentioned before, because opening a business is a big deal, but initiating a small change is a good way to practice what leadership really is uh, with minimal risk. For example, uh, anybody that wants to start a change, we have a, the recipe for how to do it. And then if I do my job well, like I tried to do last night, we'll see how it goes, is to just encourage people who are still somewhat on the periphery to engage with the organization by leading a change that they want, right? So they're used to the old model. They just tell the boss and he or she or whatever decides what to do. But, and then a good boss in their mind will do it and a bad boss won't. But what I want is good idea, start leading. Here's the recipe for how you do it. So I love the way you have that defined uh, for people. Um, we've got a couple minutes left. What any final words for um, our students and our our uh, listeners on open book um, for us to you know work and and think about? Well, I just think the other model that people are used to, which is the one Paul and I started with too, it makes no sense. It's just what everybody's used to. Uh, like I said very quickly before, I mean, it's a little bit like everybody in your company's playing basketball, but only the coach and the general manager, maybe the assistant coaches know the score and they just keep yelling at the players to play harder. And the players got no idea whether there's one minute left 20 minutes left. They don't know if they're winning by two, losing by two. They don't know if they're winning by two or winning by 200. And it requires very different strategy. And when they don't know what's going on, then they just revert to what they know, which is a 10 year old in a toy store. So we've got inclusion in the data and inclusion in the activity and the so yeah. what of the data. Yeah. And then, and then everybody comes out ahead because a, there's things that people on the front line or whatever will notice that as the leader, we don't notice. I mean, it's not that one person's smarter. It's just you're looking from a different angle. You're going to see different things. Second, they're they're growing and learning. So the quality of their decisions are going to get better. 
people in most hierarchical settings live with the delusion or illusion that they're the only ones making decisions, but everybody's making decisions all day long. Should I hustle or not hustle? Should I be nice to this customer? Or should I treat them, you know, kind of cursorily or rudely? Uh, should I go back and double check the quality on the product or should I just not worry about it because I'm off in an hour? Like, I mean, these are just, you know, everybody in every business is making thousands of decisions a week. So the, the bosses in those businesses have this illusory concept that they're the decision maker, but it's crazy. So if the people on the front line have bad information, how can they make good decisions? Well, thank you for uh, the, the beacon that you're holding and also for the purity of your dedication to Ann Arbor. Uh, that's that's almost another issue for us to talk about responsibility of the corporation to its physical environment. Well, I, I, yes, it's a long conversation, but I believe it's appropriate. And uh, it would be a little the other way is a little bit like, Bob, you have such a great prairie. Let's let's put it in New Mexico and let's let's put one in Manhattan, too. We can really <laughs> clean up on this. It doesn't make sense. Like it's great for southwestern southeastern Wisconsin which I assume is where you are, it's beautiful, but it's completely wrong for Florida or, you know, Jamaica or Western Canada. Amen. Thank you so much, Ari. And it's so good to Thank talk you. to you again. Always a pleasure, sir. I got to make it up one. there. Yeah, come on up. I'm here. And I'll uh, dig into the beliefs. Thank you, Ari. Okay. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. To learn more about how to fulfill your potential as a leader, visit us at hardlightshow.com. Take our transformation leadership quiz while you're at it.